Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Hello and welcome in to the Jeff Andreas Show here on Wednesday, February 5th. And thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you're all having a good day so far here today. I have a good show lined up here. Coming up in about 10 minutes, I'll be joined by the Grand Chief of the Union of BC Indian Chiefs, Stuart Phillip. Yesterday, a legal challenge from four Indigenous communities over the reapproval of the Trans Mountain Pipeline had been dismissed by the Federal Court of Appeal. The challenge was brought forward by the Coldwater Indian Band just south of Merritt, as well as three other coastal Indigenous communities. Coldwater Band Chief Lee Spahan said that there are some positive with the news, notably that the Federal Court of Appeal confirming that Trans Mountain has a duty to consult with the band about routing the pipeline through its territory. Spahan said, quote, we are very disappointed, however, today, meaning yesterday, the court did confirm that the route through the Coldwater Valley still has to be determined. Risks to our community, drinking water still need to be studied, and that work is underway, end quote. So, further to that, the UBCIC strongly disagrees with the decision released yesterday and continues to stand by the Indigenous nations who put forth the legal challenges to defend their right to free prior and informed consent and hold the Crown accountable for its failure to adequately consult with Indigenous peoples. So I will be joined by Grand Chief Stewart in a little bit to talk more about his concerns with how the process has played out so far and what we can expect now moving forward, because I am sure, in fact, I am pretty well positive that this issue is far from over, and it will be interesting to hear how things like protests and demonstrations or whatever else may be coming as a result may escalate here in the not-too-distant future. Coming up in the back half of the show, I will be speaking with the BC Office of the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. A new report was released just this morning, which was entitled, or is entitled, Assisted Living in British Columbia, Trends in Access, Affordability and Ownership. So the report looks at trends in, of course, access, affordability, and ownership of assisted living centers, focusing on BC's challenge of maintaining and increasing access to publicly subsidized assisted living. More specifically, the report examines the effects of the provincial policy approach that relies on private sector financing for new assisted living facilities, and it also determines that this policy approach has not been effective. So when looking at the 10-year period between the years of 2008 and 2017, four of five regional health authorities in British Columbia, um, sorry, health authorities here in BC, access to publicly subsidized units fell. Vancouver Coastal Health saw a 25% decrease. That's the biggest such increase. Fraser Health, a 19% drop. Vancouver Island Health, a 17% decline. And Interior Health, a fall of 11%. The one outlier in all of this was in Northern Health, which saw a 5% increase in assisted living access rates. So the author of that report, Andrew Longhurst, will join me at around the 35-minute mark to talk a little bit more about this report, which, like I said, was released just this morning, and we'll talk about what his conclusions or recommendations are coming out of all of that. So that will be coming up in a little over 25 minutes. No, a little less than 25 minutes, excuse me. So stay tuned for that. That should be a good little conversation. And of course, yes, it is Wednesday, the middle of the week, hump day, if you will. And that, of course, means it's time for another edition of That's Whack Wednesday. So today I will look a little bit more at this whole situation when it comes to the coronavirus on cruise ships. 
Uh, talked a little bit about that last week and the concern around the coronavirus here in Canada and in BC and how people were flocking to stores to go buy hospital masks. And now that I felt was a little bit whack. But uh, yeah, this whole situation of now the virus is on a cruise ship. I mean, you can't run away when you're on a cruise ship. So that is a bit of a whack situation. So I'll be talking a little bit about that. I also have one concern about this whole uh, title. People keep calling it the new coronavirus. What is the old coronavirus? I'm unaware of this old coronavirus. So that's one thing that I have a, a bit of a sticking point with when it comes to how we're referring to this disease or this virus, if you will. Um, but that's, uh, that's a whole other issue. I will also be talking a little bit about chain restaurants here in Kamloops as uh, we're looking at the impending closure of Swiss Chalet at the end of this week here in town. Um, that's just one of a long list of chain restaurants that have uh, failed to stick around here in Kamloops over the last few years. So we'll be talking a little bit more about that and just sort of the state of uh, restaurant businesses here in Kamloops. And then also uh, a new report released this week talks about the concern about the fireflies. Yes, fireflies are facing extinction, so I'll be talking a little bit more about that as well. Not a, not an insect we often think too, too much about until it's a nice bright, or sorry, nice dark summer night, uh, and we're looking out to see if we can see those fireflies flying around. Uh, looks like uh, that could be something we won't see be very much of in the not-too-distant future. So I'll be talking a little bit more about that study as well. That is all coming up at the end of the show as part of That's Whack Wednesday. So stick around. we got a great show coming up here. Uh, more Jeff Andrea show is coming up after the break, and I'll be speaking with the Grand Chief of the Union of BC Indian Chiefs, uh, Stuart Phillip. Or Phil so stick around. Uh, more on that next. Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Welcome back to the program here on Wednesday. A legal challenge from four Indigenous communities over the reapproval of the Trans Mountain Pipeline has been dismissed by the Federal Court of Appeal. The Union of BC Indian Chiefs strongly disagrees with the decision released yesterday and continues to stand by the Indigenous nations who put forth their legal challenges to defend their right to free, prior, and informed consent. I caught up yesterday with UBCIC Grand Chief Stuart Phillip. Here is our conversation. Can I just first start by getting your initial reaction to the decision? I mean, when the word came out that the Federal Court of Appeal dismissed this challenge, um, I guess, what, what was your initial thoughts? Well, needless to say, uh, we were deeply disappointed to hear the decision of the B.C. Court of Appeal, but at the same time, we weren't, um, we weren't surprised. With that in mind, I mean, what are some of the major concerns with the decision itself? I know you guys have kind of been, uh, you know, pretty forthcoming with what your concerns are over the project as a whole. But just when it comes to this decision, um, you know, what what were the concerns with what the Federal Court of Appeals sort of put out here? Well, the, um, the issue has always been um, our very grave concerns we harbor in relation to catastrophic pipeline ruptures or tanker spills in terms of the eco-marine environment and the integrity of the environment um, as it pertains to those types of inevitable disasters. I would say the, uh, the court ruling uh, completely missed the gravity of the uh, climate crisis and what the fossil fuel industry uh, represents in regard to, to that issue. Um, I have said publicly on countless occasions 
that the Trans Mountain uh, Pipeline Expansion Project is much broader than uh, Indigenous uh, rights, as important as our land and human rights are. The uh, issue is very much centered on the um, environment, the Salish Sea, the, for example, uh, the precarious situation with the orcas, with the killer whale populations and the uh, fisheries, the uh, wild salmon, and things of that nature, the safety, health, and well-being of people impacted by the inevitable uh, catastrophic events of oil spills and pipeline ruptures. So again, the court uh, completely missed the boat in regard to those issues. And um, again, it's much broader than Indigenous rights, and there are uh, hundreds of thousands of British Columbians that oppose this project, far beyond the Indigenous population. So there was a failure on the part of the BC Court of Appeal to offer any pathway forward in regard to the decision. So the opposition to this project will continue. You know, obviously, this will go to the Supreme Court of Canada. This is not over. And uh, I would suspect throughout the summer, throughout the spring and summer, we're going to be looking at increase in the activities of land defenders uh, as we witness up in Wissowatan Territory and Burnaby Mountain. So with that all in mind, I mean, it sounds like, uh, you know, moving forward, you mean you mentioned it's going to go to the, the Supreme Court um, and be appealed there. That would not be a surprise to anybody. I think that's pretty much what would be expected. But uh, I guess in terms of those demonstrations that you're talking about, I mean, any ideas what that could potentially look like? I mean, we've seen in the past where police get involved and it gets, uh, you know, can be can be violent and dangerous. And uh, I don't think anybody wants things to go in that direction. But I mean, is that something that you could foresee coming? These demonstrations escalating as we move towards the spring and summer? Well, I don't think there's any question about that. What springs to mind is uh, Cleocut Sound uh, battle of, you know, many years ago uh, in regard to forestry, in regard to opposition to clear-cut logging. And there were several hundred arrests in in regard to Cleocut Sound. I think that this issue uh, has the real potential to surpass the uh, what happened with Cleoquit Sound. And again, I stress that this issue goes well beyond the uh, concerns of First Nations or the involvement of First Nations in uh, in regard to any economic uh, benefits. Uh, the general population is deeply concerned about the impacts to the environment in regard to catastrophic um, events. One of the things that I've heard a lot of people discuss when it comes to Indigenous rights and looking at these types of projects is, uh, I guess, a so-called veto power. And, and in your release, it states basically that's not, um, you know, that's not what UBCIC is sort of looking at in this this particular case. It's not looking for veto rights, but rather human rights. So I just wanted to get you to expand a little bit on potentially what that means. When you're talking about, uh, you know, we're not looking for veto rights, but rather we want human rights. What 
sorts of human rights do you mean that have not been um, pertained to so far that you believe uh, you know should be done better? Like what what should be done better when we're talking human rights uh, when we're looking specifically at this Trans Mountain Pipeline project? Well, um, the the failure of the BC Court of Appeal is an inherent failure in the uh, judicial system itself. Uh, clearly, uh, the existing judicial processes in this country are very colonial in nature, very neo-colonial in nature. And what we've witnessed over the last period of time is a transition um, through uh, such international uh, developments as the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples that uh, the Indigenous laws and Indigenous uh, legal institutions must be taken into consideration, which is the relationship of Indigenous people to our lands and to our way of life. And the courts haven't caught up in spite of the fact that we have the Chilcotin case, which was very pointed in regard to that, um, those issues. So we're not getting a balanced review through that lens. We're, we're, we're looking at um, how the law is interpreted through the colonial, neo-colonial lens. And obviously that's going to fail to achieve uh, the much vaunted uh, notions of reconciliation. And it's not going to resolve these issues that are deeply rooted in the climate crisis and everything that that represents. And I can tell you that the general population is on the move, particularly young people. When one considers uh, Greta Thunberg and the recent student walkouts we've had in secondary and post-secondary institutions, in regard to the very grave concerns that the general population has in regard to the climate crisis. You know, uh, one word, Australia. So this issue will not quietly evaporate, you know, in the early morning hours. There is a, a very deep resolve, uh, deep determination that that is growing in regard to the, you know, the more evidence we see of the devastating impacts of the climate crisis. Now, you made a, a lot of interesting points here, Chief Philip, and, and a lot of, um, you know, noteworthy things have been said here. But I just wonder, it seems evident in some regard when you're talking about, you know, the climate crisis and the concerns around that that's very well documented. Um, and you talk about, you know, the human rights and the rights of Indigenous people and, and maybe how those haven't been um, um, adhered to as closely as p- politicians say they're always going to. Do you have any confidence moving forward that we can see a change in any of those aspects? Or, or you know, I mean, it feels like this fight's been going on for a long time. And uh, I'm just curious if you have any real true belief that, uh, you know, what you're calling for in these next steps will actually be taken or if it's almost a losing battle. No, um, again, um, you know, this is uh, by no stretch of the imagination over. Uh, the, the battle, the fight will continue. And um, we're a long ways from home, so to speak, in terms of um, the evolution um, of the law to um, 
you know, the transition and transformation that needs to take place uh, within the legal systems in this country. And, and again, I go back to the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples that clearly uh, outlines uh, the principles necessary for that to take place. What we've heard so far is a lot of lip service being paid to the need to move through the transition and the transformation. But, you know, for example, we had the, the former Liberal government uh, make that commitment to legislate the principles of the UN Declaration in federal legislation. And we know that that effort fell short. However, in the last federal election, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau recommitted that his government would move in that direction as early as this year. And that work needs to take place, and there needs to be... um, a change in the the laws in this country to accommodate those changes and then we'll have a framework to adjudicate these very very difficult resource development decisions but we're not there yet obviously um, and you know as we say uh, at the UBCIC this just represents another day at the office the battle continues well, Grand Chief, thank you so much for taking the time. I, I really appreciate it. There is a lot to discuss when it comes to this project, and I think the conversation is far from over. So so thank you very much for taking the time here. I, I really appreciate it. Okay, thank you. That was the Grand Chief of the Union of BC Indian Chiefs talking about the concerns surrounding yesterday's decision where the Federal Court of Appeal dismissed the challenge by those four First Nation groups over the Trans Mountain Pipeline Expansion Project. That decision, of course, does clear the way for the $7.4 billion project to go ahead moving oil from BC or to BC from Alberta. That said, I am sure at least these four Indigenous groups will continue to fight against the project itself, and there will also be groups that are in favor of the project too, so... There's people on both sides of the argument here. Some even want ownership of the pipeline. So we will see where things go from here. Work in the Kamloops area on the pipeline is set to get underway here in the spring. So we'll continue to monitor that. Uh, I think it's only a matter of time before that work begins. But just how smoothly the construction of this pipeline goes does really remain to be seen. Coming up after the break, I'm going to be talking more about assisted living in B.C. The Canadian Centre of Policy Alternatives put out a new report this morning entitled Assisted Living in British Columbia, Trends in Access, Affordability and Ownership. I'll be speaking with the author of that study, Andrew Longhurst, after the break. So please stick around. The voice of your community, Radio NL 610 AM News Talk at RadioNL.com. Here's Jeff Andreas. Welcome back to the program. It is Wednesday the 5th, and thank you so much for tuning in here today. Uh, Seniors who live in B.C. currently have less access to publicly subsidized assistant living than they did in 2008. In four of the five regional health authorities in B.C., access to publicly subsidized units fell between 2008 and 2017, with Interior Health looking at a decrease of about 11% in that time frame. This is all according to a new report released today from the B.C. office of the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. And I'm joined on the phone now by research associate and the study's author, Andrew Longhurst. Andrew, thank you so much for taking the time. Great to be with you. So I guess just let me start by kind of asking about, uh, you know, why this topic came forward. I mean, what uh, what sort of piqued your interest when talking about publicly subsidized housing for seniors and, and what made you want to look into this a little further? Well, in B.C., uh, 
publicly subsidized assisted living is an important part of our uh, publicly funded seniors care system, but it's not uh, part of the system that's received much attention in BC. And in fact, this uh, study is one of the first comprehensive looks at the assisted living sector. And what the report does document is some very concerning trends just in terms of access and affordability. And uh, so I thought it was really important that uh, we bring this uh, to light and and uh, really make it a public policy issue. So when you were kind of compiling all this data to see sort of what the changes have been over the course of about a decade here, I mean, were you, were you surprised by what you were able to find out? Were you surprised by, uh, you know, how, how much fewer opportunity, I guess, there is now compared to what there was 10 years ago for access to these kind of units? I was. And so what I found is that access had declined uh, by 17% across the province. As you mentioned, it declined by 11% in interior health region. And uh, the the number of uh, private pay assisted living units has grown much more quickly than publicly subsidized units. And, and that's troubling because we know that um, many moderate and low income seniors simply can't afford private pay assisted living. And private pay assisted living, I should add, uh, is completely paid out of pocket. Um, There are no limits on how much um, a senior can expect to pay. And so that's why it's really important that we see an increase um, and that we're keeping pace with the population of seniors in our province by adding subsidized assisted living uh, across all communities in in the province. So with that in mind, I guess, you know, are are you, I'm not sure if your report necessarily went into this specifically, but I mean, have you seen uh, a lot of concern, I guess, from from the general population about being unable to uh, find somewhere to live when they are in their, you know, later stages of life? Well, we know that... uh housing and uh, seniors care is an issue across the province. It continues to be uh, an important issue in in all communities, I think it's fair to say. Um, and affordability certainly is top of mind for so many, um, as we know, not just in the lower mainland, but really all across the province. And so I think uh, it really is um, a pressing issue and and that's why we need to be seeing the expansion of these services um, because it does help seniors stay in their communities. It helps them remain um, independent as long as they can. Uh, And it also, um, from a financial perspective, uh, it's more uh, cost effective to the public health care system if we can provide the appropriate housing and supports um, in the community rather than uh, having seniors end up in hospital or long-term care. Uh, One of the stats I I took away from uh, one of the graphs that you had in your report was looking at, I mean, focusing on interior health, right, because we are here in Kamloops, and it said um, in in interior health, uh, there's about 243 private pay units compared to just 26 publicly subsidized units. I mean, is this a a trend that you've seen sort of across the country? I mean, that is a a pretty significant imbalance, I guess, with with looking at private pay units compared to those, those public subsidized units. Yeah, what has been quite concerning uh, with 
what I found is that uh, private pay units are outpacing uh, publicly subsidized units. And in fact, in interior health, uh, there are now more private pay units than there are publicly subsidized units. It's the only health region where that's the case. And, and that's a concern because we know that we have wait lists for subsidized assisted living. And uh, certainly, as you asked, across the country, um, you know, I can't speak specifically to what's happening everywhere, but I think um, the larger concern here is a trend towards relying on out-of-pocket payment for seniors care puts a great amount of financial burden and stress on seniors who, by and large, are not wealthy, and, and that's a stereotype that I think we need to really challenge because it's simply not accurate. Uh, when we look at the, the median incomes of seniors uh, in our province, it's not that high. Uh, and so in the report, I, I looked at the average cost of private pay assisted living uh, and those median incomes. And so when we look at uh, senior couples at the middle income, uh, they can barely afford a one bedroom private pay unit. Uh, and it's even worse for seniors living alone because even a bachelor suite uh, would eat up uh, over 80% of their income. So clearly not an affordable option. And in private pay, let's not forget the, that there's lots of additional costs that can be added on, um, unlike publicly subsidized assisted living. Yeah, and just to, to touch on that point, uh, the, the in your report it mentions the CMHC definition of affordable housing assumes that uh, households spend no more than 30% of their income on housing, and I think that's pretty rare just in the general population to spend that little. And, uh, you know, for those who are on a fixed income and, and looking at seniors specifically, uh, yeah, if you're spending a little bit more than that, that's going to get uh, pretty difficult pretty quickly. And you mentioned that, uh, you know, even the... Even, uh, rates of pay are, are maybe even a little bit higher uh, in that situation. You said a bachelor suite would require about 80% of, of income in, in some cases, so clearly unaffordable. And, and with that in mind, um, you know, your report does go on to say the financial services giant uh, UBS does identify Canada as the second most attractive market for investing in independent living, assisted living, and long-term care facilities um, behind Japan and just slightly ahead of the U.S. So, I mean, is that a concern that we're that attractive when looking at, um, you know, private investment for this kind of thing? It is a concern, and I think it builds on what we heard yesterday from BC's seniors advocate on her new report showing that nonprofit providers are actually much more cost effective, and they actually delivered the the hours of care that they were contracted to provide, and yet for-profits did not. Uh, so I think in that sense, it may be a, a lucrative uh, investment opportunity here in Canada. Uh, but I think we really, uh, to be prudent with our, our public dollars, we need to be thinking carefully about, is that a wise investment when we choose to focus on uh, working with for-profit corporations uh, rather than nonprofit uh, organizations and health authorities? And I think we know from from the advocates report yesterday that the the value for money uh, from the for-profits is not there. And I think that's one of the concerns also coming out of this report is that we need to be focusing on expanding the supply in the nonprofit sector where there's better value for money. Yeah, and I appreciate you bringing up that report yesterday from the senior advocate. Isabel McKenzie is uh, scheduled to be on with me tomorrow. Uh, contact her yesterday. So hopefully we'll have her on on Thursday. Um, 
So just a little preview for what's coming up tomorrow. But uh, this report that you put out here does make two recommendations, two major recommendations. Just wondering if you could kind of summarize those for us here. So the recommendations are to uh, for the provincial government to provide new funding opportunities to nonprofit organizations and health authorities to expand the supply of subsidized assisted living. And just to add on to that, in fact, over about a 10-year span, uh, we saw in total uh, about $3.3 million in capital funding going into the subsidized assisted living sector. That's really a drop in the bucket when we look at the total health care uh, capital budget. Um, it works out to be less than one-tenth of one percent. So really making the point here that we need to see investments because we virtually see none on the capital side. So helping nonprofits build new buildings, uh, that's where the provincial government can provide a lot of support and uh, do it quite cost effectively. Uh, and then the second recommendation is to improve uh, transparency and public reporting and accountability in uh, both assisted living and long-term care. And this also uh, echoes uh, recommendations from the seniors advocate that we really need to beef up uh, our accountability of the sector because we simply, in many cases, we're not collecting the, the right data um, to inform policy decisions and to be able for, for government to effectively negotiate with the industry when you don't have basic information. And that's a real problem. So I think um, when, you're, when we're talking about seniors care, um, health and safety and quality of care is of the utmost importance and we need to ensure that our data collection and accountability uh, is much stronger than it is uh, today. Awesome. Well, I think this is an important subject here, Andrew. We, uh, you know, we often talk about how those who are our seniors, you know, are, are they took care of us for so long, and once they get up there in age, it's it's our turn to take care of them. And um, you know, making housing unaffordable just isn't a way to go about doing that. Uh, anything else that you want to add here, Andrew? Before I let you go. I would just add that I think BC is really in a good place fiscally to be able to make these investments. Uh, we have a strong economic position and uh, I think the time is now. We know that the population of seniors uh, in communities across the province is growing and these are really important services uh, and, and the time is now to make these investments and it's entirely possible. Well, thank you so much for taking the time, Andrew. I really appreciate it. Um, yeah, for those who are listening and, and want to take a look at the report, uh, you can visit the uh, Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives website and, and find it there. Um, definitely some interesting stuff to go over. So hopefully people take some time to read it. And uh, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me and, and help people uh, you know, know what's going on. And, and maybe they'll take some time to, to look through your report. So thank you so much, Andrew. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you so much. That was Andrew Longhurst, author of the report entitled Assisted Living Here in British Columbia, Trends in Access, Affordability and Ownership. Andrew is with the BC Office of the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. So like I just said, uh, if you want to check out his report, you can uh, find it uh, through the CCPA website. Coming up next, it is time for another edition of That's Whack Wednesday. I mean, seniors not being able to afford housing is pretty whack, but I got a few more things to talk about. So that is going to be coming up next. So please... Stick around. Your opinion. Call or text 250-374-5345. Find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Radio NL News. This is Jeff Andreas on RadioNL.com.
Hello and welcome back to the Jeff Andrea Show here on Wednesday, February the 5th. And thank you so much for tuning in. Of course, like I mentioned, it is Wednesday, the middle of the week. Hump day, if you will. It is all downhill from here, both in the week itself and this show. It is time for That's Whack Wednesday. It's That's Whack Wednesday. Things first, I'm going back to the coronavirus. I talked about this on last week's edition of That's Whack Wednesday after one case was reported in the Lower Mainland and people began flocking to stores to go buy hospital masks like it was a massive overreaction by a number of people who were going out to take all these unnecessary precautions because one person was suspected of having the illness. Well, that was a week ago, and that was pretty wacky in and of itself. But now things have started to get a little bit more dicey. Not necessarily here in Canada and in B.C., but just in terms of travel, right? I mean, obviously, whenever we talk about travel and illnesses, there's always a concern because you never know what you're going to get from anywhere. But now it seems to be a little bit more heated in terms of that conversation, you, right? I mean, you need to worry about sitting in an airport because who knows where people are coming from. It's even more tight when you're getting on a plane itself. And now, apparently, people need to be worried when out at sea. A cruise ship carrying 251 Canadians has been quarantined off the coast of Japan following a confirmed outbreak of the coronavirus. Princess Cruises has said that 10 people have tested positive for the virus on the ship. None of those are Canadian, which is good news for us here when they eventually do make their way home. But that's assuming they don't contract the virus during the rest of their boat ride. The ship is carrying 2,666 guests. That was hard to get out. And 1,045 crew. That's a total of 3,711 people. Sounds like a perfect story, doesn't it? Crews carrying thousands of people heads out to sea. Man gets ill. Virus spreads. You try to keep people in some kind of quarantine section of the ship. It doesn't work. There's no way to contain it. More people are getting sick. The doctors are getting ship sick. The whole ship is now susceptible. Can they get back on land? Will a poor authority even allow them to dock? The whole situation, my friends, it's all just a little bit. What? Now, as much as I want to make light of the situation, it is a bit scary for those actually on board. And this whole coronavirus outbreak has been put into our heads as something that we should be very, very afraid of. That by itself is a little... Now, just how bad is this virus? Well, many, I'm sure, already know this, but the coronavirus has led to more than 20,000 illnesses and 427 deaths in China, as well as more than 200 illnesses and two deaths outside of mainland China. Maybe that sounds like something to be somewhat worried about, but that's nothing compared when you're just thinking about the flu. According to the Center for Disease Control, in the U.S. alone, the flu has already caused an estimated 19 million illnesses, 180,000 hospitalizations, and 10,000 deaths this season. How worried are you about contracting the flu? Well, I mean, maybe you got your flu shot. Maybe you're like me and you just never really had the flu, so you're not overly worried about it. But chances are you're not too concerned about losing your life to the flu. Nobody wants to get it. I understand that. I've never had it, like I said, but people have told me it is the worst thing that can happen to you. So I get it. Nobody wants the flu, but you're not necessarily worried about dying from it. And people are acting like this coronavirus is much, much worse than that. And I got to say, I think that that is a little bit... <laughs> Now, 
What else is whack these days? I mean, the coronavirus is out there. We keep talking about that, but there's a lot more going on than just an illness coming out of China. Uh, what's happening here in Kamloops? Well, how about the impending closure of Swiss Chalet? Not necessarily my favorite restaurant or anything, but I like a good quarter chicken dinner once in a while, and I absolutely love chalet sauce, so I would say it is a bit of a loss for me. The restaurant on Hillside Drive near Aberdeen Mall will close at the end of the day on Friday. Management says Harvey's at the same location will also close on Friday. Both chain restaurants are part of the Recipe Unlimited Group, which is a Toronto-based company that operates brands including the Keg, Eastside Mario's, Milestones, and Montana's. Milestones and Montana's used to operate here in Kamloops, but they permanently closed down in May of last year. The keg closed down in 2016, while Eastside Mario's closed down in 2013. What is the deal with chain restaurants? Do people not eat there anymore? Like, I'm all for local and trying new food and trying to appreciate the culinary experience or whatever of whatever city that you live in or visit. I get that. I mean, you get a real chef to come up with its own recipes. Uh, it's an overall better experience for the most part, but once in a while... It is nice to have that spot that is familiar wherever you go, you know? You, you, you know what you're going to get. You know what the menu looks like. You know how it's going to taste. Uh, it's a safe option. Safe is not always the best thing, but once in a while, it is. I mean, would you jump on a cruise ship off the coast of Japan right now, or would you take the safe option of staying home? The cruise would probably be more fun, but there's always a chance that you don't have the experience that you anticipate. So the fact that chain restaurants seem to be closing up you know, left, right, and center here in Kamloops, I think that is just a little... Now, I will stress that that's probably not a bad thing for the locally owned and operated, but just for those who are visiting, I know, like, my parents sometimes, they are very much into the chain restaurant thing. They don't necessarily love to try new things, so the fact that we're losing these kinds of businesses here in Kamloops, it's a little bit whack. Now... One more whack thing for the day. A study published this week in Bioscience set out to assess the greatest threats to the world's approximately 2,000 species of fireflies. Well, very little population data does exist for most of those species of the iconic glowing beetles, but researchers in the field have observed a decline in recent years. In fact, it found that fireflies face extinction from habitat loss, light pollution, and pesticides. You know what I think about that? Whack! Now, we already are seeing the bees slowly disappear, but now fireflies too. I mean, no surprise when it comes to habitat as lots of wildlife species are declining because their habitat is shrinking. So that wasn't a huge surprise to learn that that habitat loss was considered their biggest threat. Uh, but other things, artificial light is a major problem for fireflies because they use their famous light to find mates and bright human lights can disrupt these courtship signals. That is, of course, an issue. I mean, they need to procreate, right? And the use of agricultural pesticides is an obvious reason for the decline of population of any species, particularly when we're talking about insects. So I got to say, the loss of fireflies, it's concerning. And to me, people, I got to say, that is, well, you know what it is. It's wicked, 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 wicked. This has been this week's edition of That's Whack Wednesday. That's Whack Wednesday with Jeff Andreas. Well, that about wraps things up for me here today. I'd like to thank all my guests for joining me. And, of course, a big thank you to all of you for listening. And remember, whether you join me for a short while or a long while, just know I enjoyed our time while it lasted. I'll be back here tomorrow at 9.